Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please support this mission by subscribing to and rating the show on your favorite podcast channel, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Anchor, or anywhere else. By doing so, you'll help others find the help which just might save their life. Also, please help by sharing a link to the show on all of your social media channels every time a new episode drops. And always remember to recover out loud. And we're five, four, three, two, one. And we are rolling. It's been a while. I have on the show today my friend Eric Husson, and he hasn't been here since episode 97, about two years ago. And for those that uh, don't know or don't remember, Eric is an executive with uh, a former executive with numerous pro sports teams, the Florida Panthers, the New Jersey Devils, Phoenix. Um, Phoenix what? <laughs> can't read can't read my own damn writing <laughs> and uh, was a manager in the nba and it was back in april 7th of 2021 episode 97 that uh, we had him here and he was just starting the podcast we're all a little crazy with theo flurry and and another feller and uh that that was a while ago in two years uh how many how many episodes have you ended up doing with we're all a little crazy we do. I, I don't know if we're as consistent as you are. So we do them in six month segments and then take six months off. So we're at about in in total through three seasons worth. I'd say we're probably in the 60 total episode range. Well, it's quite a few, actually. Uh, yeah. I mean, as we were talking before we hit the record button, most people quit before 20. You know, yeah. actually, most people quit after five. They're like, oh, my God, the world doesn't love me yet. <laughs> so they just quit because they're not getting the dopamine hits. But uh, it, it's uh, the only it's way to win is love early on. Right. Yeah. It's it's you got you have to show your passion for the topic and know and, and show that you care about it. You continue to put it on. You have guests that fit into a topic area that you are passionate about. And then. You're right. It hits this point where word of mouth starts to spread. And and let's be honest, like most people, and we're fortunate in this case, Theo's got the platform that he's got on social media. The other gentleman that you mentioned before, his name is Darren Ravel. So he's a sports business reporter. He built his whole following on Twitter. So he's got 2 million followers on Twitter. So when we put episodes out, it's, you know, the tailwinds of the help from them and then we have a, um, a a broadcast partner. This is you know this is why I can't take so much credit that we've been on for so long because of how much they help with the logistics. Um, a company called Crossover Media Group. So we record the episodes and they do all of the production pieces of it in terms of upload and getting it to the different channels and stuff like that. So I think a big reason also why people quit is because people don't realize how much work goes into. I'm sure you've shared it with your audience before 
the background of, you know, editing it and making sure it sounds right and then getting it up on the different channels. There's a lot of work that goes into that. And just scheduling. I mean, I'm a one-man show, so uh, all the prospecting, I mean, it was easy to call you up because we already know each other, but uh, getting people the first time, I have worked for over a year to get people on the show, uh, two years in some cases, before I finally got it over the finish line. That is a whole lot of outreach and a whole lot of follow-up again and again and again before you finally get them, Uh, but that's why I get the guests that I do. I've had, uh, thanks to Theo, actually, he introduced me to the premier of the province. <laughs> so I had, uh, um, it's like a governor of a state, and she gave me 25 minutes. I'm like, I will take it, <laughs> you know, but that's, that's tough to access. But only, um, you got to stay on it and on it and on it and utilize your network. It's tough to get those guests. But, um, you know, that, that piece of it, I don't get help from, from crossover on. So I'm glad you brought that part up is, is, you know, the, the fact that we started the podcast in 2021, we've been doing, we're all a little crazy as an organization and the same here, global mental health movement back in really the beginning of 2018. So there was two and a half years of, you know, fostering relationships where, you know, per the previous episode, the rallying cry to bring everyone together was vulnerable storytelling, focusing on what we've been through, not what our labels are. Right. Mm. And so when you have a group of people who there's a trust factor that there's a long form game of what you're attempting to build, when you go back to them for things like we've got a visit coming up at a school, um, we're doing a docuseries filming or, Hey, I'd love to have you on the podcast because your story pertains to this particular current event story that's coming up, it's a little bit easier, right? I don't want to say it's so much easier, but it's a little bit easier because there's a narrative then of, okay, I understand where I fit into what the flow is of what you're trying to build, which by the way, you've been doing beautifully because there's a theme to your show. Well, one of the secrets to success, I I guess I'll call it is, having a niche and in this case it's almost a micro niche um veterans and first responders who want to recover you know that's uh, that's a pretty narrow niche and and i'm a veteran that's hosting it so i'm pretty sure that within this micro niche it's the largest in the world it's how i advertise it anyway and until somebody shows me different i'll i'll continue to say it's the biggest of uh, of its kind on earth and it probably is but um, it, it, it doesn't matter. What matters is that the mission and the vision, right? The mission, save lives, relieve pain for, by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. And for the most part, I stay right on target. And that helps. It also hurts because it's not a broad audience that I, that I might appeal to, like a news commentator or something like that. You know what, though, Mark? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this in that when you say it's not a broad audience and it's micro niche, I'll give you a broader perspective on that that I hope is helpful. Sure. So, you know, and, and this may be referencing back to some of the stuff that we spoke about in the previous episode, but this idea that five and five people are impacted by mental health instead of one in five people. When, when that was my realization, when I came to, and I found out what mental health was even about, because I was told all the wrong things for two and a half years as my brain was dysfunctional, which I know you wanted to dive deeper on. 
And then I decided to start an organization like, okay, well, if we're going to walk what we talk and it is five and five people, how do we segment society? Five and five means everyone. That means 8 billion people. How do you segment society into functional groups where you're reaching people in a niche enough way where they are at, but then also are broad enough to actually walk the five and five talk, right? And so we have a K through 12 program, schools. We have a college program. That's still schools. We've got a corporate office program. That's offices. So schools and offices are the two biggest places people hang out. But the other two areas of focus that we have, one is sports teams and leagues. And that's very niche. And it's niche because if you might have seen posts that we just did with the with the uh, Buffalo Sabres, well, sports teams give messaging for nonprofits or let's just call them cause initiatives like yours, a platform to get wider, right? They have a large number of eyeballs, so they help us get out there. So so you wouldn't really say that sports fits in the realm of schools and offices, right? Those two are pretty freaking large. Sports is a lot more niche, but we need their platform that they have to get out wider. But the fifth one is servicemen and women and first responders. So a little bit broader than just service, right? But but first responders, police, fire, paramedics as well. And the reason for that is in the space of mental health, find me another group that's been as impacted where they're dealing with their own stress and trauma personally, and then vicarious stress and trauma, almost every single one of them by what they live through on their job, right? So it's it's niche, but it's also very, very specific to this topic where almost every service person or first responder can relate to, and I love that you call it PTS instead of PTSD, they've all been through it. I think everyone in the world has been through, but even more so in the, in the military and first responder community. I like how you flesh that out. My wife and I were just talking this morning. She just finished uh, the book spare with uh, Prince Harry there. Mm -hmm. And you know, it kind of bugs me all of the chatter saying, Oh, what do you got to complain about Harry? You know, you grew up in a palace, you know, uh, quit your, quit your whining. (laughs) But it's so short-sighted and so ignorant those comments because I wouldn't trade with him for, for $10 million. There's no way. I, I mean, I had a rough childhood, but, um, it would have been a lot rougher in that cold, cold palace, you know, where they don't even hug each other. Mark, Mark, take that out of the equation even for a second. You just shared with me, and I hope I'm not revealing secrets here that you lost your father recently. Yeah. Just nine days ago. Yeah. So, so the loss of a parent, probably one of the worst things in the world, other than the loss of a child the other way around. Right. Prince Harry lost his mom on a world stage in front of everyone knowing it happened, broiled in controversy. I'm not trying to coddle Prince Harry. I'm not trying to say he wasn't privileged with. But he was only twelve. Yeah, you 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 watch the person who is, and and if you look, I'm reading into their relationship, but it clearly appeared like the children were closer with Diana than they were with Charles, right? And so you watch that, and you say the rug got pulled out from underneath him. His war that he fought started, and probably even before. He lost his mom because I'm sure there was a lot of volatility in that household between uh, Charles and Diana, whereas a child, when you're watching that. So for everyone who says, well, the silver spoon and well, the money and well, all that stuff, you don't get shielded from the shit that you live through as a human being when you're watching that happen. 
No. Uh, living in that environment, I couldn't even imagine. Well, actually, I can't imagine. I can imagine a cold environment where there's no affection. <laughs> I guess I can imagine <laughs> that pretty damn well. Uh, but t- to say he had a silver spoon, like, look, all the toys and things he, he's got, but he didn't have the love of his father. Yep. You know, uh, he couldn't even get a hug out of him or an, at- or an attaboy or any kind of affection from anybody but his mother who died when he was 12. And then, then what? <laughs> you know, there's there's no touching. You don't. There's no hand holding. There's no hugs. There's no nothing. And everything is very distant and tepid and cold. Uh, that is just a hellish environment to grow up in. And um, yeah, no thanks, no thanks at all. And what we know from trauma is that when it happens in childhood, like. That's for, for most of us. You tend to stay in a state of arrested development. So at 12, his development stalled right there because of the death of his mom. That, that, that was his one person that he could feel a connection with. And, um, and that's it. And now he's got nobody, you know, except for maybe his wife. I hope he has a sense of connection with her. But to shit on him... And saying, oh, you know, what, what do you got to complain about? Well, how ignorant. And, yeah. and then he rev- he's got two tours of Afghanistan, for Christ's sake. You know, dude is a legit combat veteran. Um, and he has the burden of taking human lives. I forget what the number was. I was quite surprised when he not only talked about it, but he put a number on it. It was a really big number, like 150 or 160 wow. lives that he's that. taken. Uh, as a as a helicopter pilot, well, that that's a hell of a lot of people, and having that on your shoulders, even if they're bad guys, you know, um, it's, they're still people. And out of the 160, were they all bad guys? Well, I, I hope so, because if they weren't, that's a hell of a thing to carry around. We just we just uh, lost a NYPD officer here at 22 years old um in uh in Brooklyn he was the third suicide of a NYPD officer in uh in, in 2023 and he was involved in a shooting and you want the video of the shooting is available for anyone to watch on YouTube there's a gentleman on a street corner in Brooklyn he was holding a gun to a woman making the woman stay there uh, you can't hear there's, there's nothing to hear on the on the video but you can see he's animated and and trying to get her to do something he's probably within five feet of her and then the police show up because they were called he shoots at the police the police shoot back at him and injure him they don't kill him they injure him and then he sits up from after having the gunshot wound and shoots back at them and eventually a fatal shot hits him because he wouldn't stop shooting despite the fact that he was injured right like he didn't give up his wave the white flag And to think about, you don't know the reasons why someone dies by suicide. There's always many reasons, right, Um, that that are contributing factors. But for it to have happened only a number of months after this young officer was involved in the fatal shooting of someone who was a bad guy, right, who was shooting back, who was, was holding someone else hostage. And so you hear that, that's one life, right, and that he was amongst his other officers. We don't know. Maybe it was his gunshot. Maybe it was the others. We're not sure. It doesn't say. But how much that weighs on you that you took a life, even if, the, if it was a life that was, 
not living the life in the, in the nicest way and the, and the most generous way. So to your point with Prince Harry, you, you, you kill 160 people. If that's what the number is, every one of those, it probably is this piercing feeling of, wow, like I impacted their family. I impacted who their loved ones were and I took them off this earth. And sometimes not right away. There's the, um, the numbness that sticks with you for years and years and years. And we find that there's combat veterans that 20, 30 years later, all of a sudden their uh, symptoms are showing up because the numbness worn off and, and they have a different perspective on what they did in war. Uh, do you ever listen to the Sean Ryan show? No. Sean Ryan was a U.S. Navy SEAL and incredibly popular show. He gets right into the nitty-gritty of the war porn. And one of the guys he had on there was a, a Canadian operator with JTF. Um, are you familiar with JTF? Have you ever heard of them before? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So they are a Tier 1 unit. Um, in the States, the Tier 1 units are Delta Force, which for the longest time they used to say didn't even exist. You know, that was, that was the secret, their, their very existence. Even though Chuck Norris had a Delta Force movie. <laughs> no, no, no uh, that's an urban legend. It's conspiracy theory. There is no Delta Force. Well, yes, there is. And they're a Tier 1 unit. Um, to put that in perspective, Navy SEALs are Tier 2, with the exception of SEAL Team 6, which is a Tier 1 unit. Sure. sure. So it's a slightly different scope of operations, but a, a higher level of training. And when you have a higher levels of training than the Navy SEALs, that's, that's something. And uh, the Army Rangers are probably a Tier 3 unit. Um, but he had... Dallas Alexander on, uh, JTF veteran, and they got right into it. But when he talked about taking lives, because he was a sniper, so he actually saw everybody that uh, that he greased. But in his mind, he had the number 200 in his head because there was one of the locals that was bragging about uh, raping about 200 kids. Oh. And... Uh, so every time he shot one, he figures he's saving 200 kids. And he's like, the more the merrier. Let's stack them bodies. And, uh, yeah, I could, I could get with that. Wow. You know, I, I could get with that for sure. I, I, when you look at it through, through that perspective, absolutely. I have a hard time thinking that I would lose any sleep about any of those. Um, but you don't know until you've done it. You know, uh, I can pretend that I can imagine because I was a soldier and I was in a war, but I can't. Unless unless you've actually done it, you don't know. But I would imagine yeah. that I wouldn't lose a damn wink over it. Um, however, 20, 30 years later, you may have a shift of perspective, which is why at the Operational Stress Injury Clinic, occasionally we see somebody from like the Korean War or Vietnam era and in their 70s, 80s, all of a sudden, oh shit, I better, I better talk to somebody because yeah. the, um, that numbness, that filter comes off and you see things differently. And you're able to relate just how messed up war actually is. And that happens no matter what type of trauma it is. Sure. Um, you can look up at a, a messed up childhood where somebody was molested. Like I was molested from the age of 7 to 12. And 
it's not until you have your own kids and you look at a seven year old and you're like, oh my God, that was that was that big when that started? That is yeah. freaking horrific. And, and then you start to get a different perspective because now you have kids. So now you see it differently. Well, what, now it hits you differently. That's what scares me so much about the last two and a half years of the pandemic yeah. is, you know, I, the analogy that I make with stress and trauma, you were talking about the the filter coming off and then accessing what you had experienced in the past. I'll describe it as we we, we accept universally as a society from a physical health standpoint, that plaque builds in our arteries over time, right? You eat shitty foods, you sit on the couch and you live in a sedentary type of way and or your genetics are such that this plaque accumulates over time. In the 70s, when people had heart attacks, we thought their heart just exploded, right? Um, obviously, that's a gross exaggeration, but we, we didn't know it as well as it's this buildup in our arteries of this hardened stuff that you could look at through a um, uh, a camera that you can put in through a catheter, right, and actually look inside and see how clogged these things are. But it's an accumulation over time that, but for those catheters and that that those those cameras, you wouldn't necessarily know that that's building up, and then someone just dies of this thing where it looks like their heart stops. So with stress and trauma, it's an accumulation over time, right? So when you say someone from the Korean War, someone from the Vietnam War. And my mind goes to, okay, and that person didn't have a phone the way that they do now before 2007. And that phone wasn't constantly going off with push notification and email notification and text message notification and deadline and pick up the kids and be there for your grandkids. And so the combination of stress and trauma on our nervous system, it remembers what it lived through in those wars. And now it's got the alert system going off with all these new technologies that are in place. That's enough to tip it off to go plaque, 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 plaque. Okay. Closing in, closing in, closing in. Now it's too much. Right. And that's why I go back to the pandemic. What scares the shit out of me is, I'm in schools, I'm in offices, and everyone's talking about back to business as usual, you know, um, making up the learning gap. I'm like, guys, do you realize what we just lived through for two and a half years, the entire planet? Everyone was on edge of, did you wear a mask? Did you not wear a mask? Did you get vaccinated? Did you not get vaccinated? Did you let people in your house? Did you not let people in your house? You're going to kill grandma if you didn't do any of these things, so make sure you stay away from her. No, you need to go near her because she could die soon because she may get COVID. Like, what was the tug of war back and forth in people's minds because of all the what-if scenarios was the most collective stress and trauma period we've ever had as a planet that doesn't go away because the powers that be say, okay, there's no longer a pandemic. That's an accumulation over time that we're only beginning to see the ramifications of when we see the suicide and the overdose numbers in a space that we're all working in, which breaks our heart because we don't want to see people lost to these things. But the problem is you, as a society, we still don't have an understanding. You, you talk with your community. You've got this large base of people in military that are getting it. I'm telling you, I go where it's voluntary into these schools, into these offices with these sports teams. The people who show up for mental health events 
are still the people who are diagnosed with this thing called mental illness. That's it. From a voluntary perspective, you do not have people who've not gone to therapy, who've not done the the research and the background work to understand what's going on in their nervous system. They still don't think this topic applies to them. And that's why we have these conversations is to try to get broader and help people understand this is way more wide reaching than you have this diagnosable thing that you were either in war specifically or you genetically have it. We really have to break down the message beyond that. As Theo has often said, trauma is the thing that binds us all. And I agree with you, Eric. I don't think that people have really grasped just how much the the pandemic has affected everybody and the impact of that trauma. My wife as a uh, retired school teacher, she still keeps going back as a guest teacher. It's like people have just gotten rude. Um, Adults too. The social skills have just, they're just gone or dented at least. And the kids, I mean, what you, the type of behavior that um, you're used to seeing is two grade levels low. And the reading ability, literacy is taking a serious dump over the last uh, couple of years. So for the people... Where does that, and your wife probably, probably, would 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 echo this where does rudeness behavior come from for everyone who's rudeness behavior comes from a, a feeling of discomfort and emotional pain which comes from an event and a thought right so why are these kids rude they're rude because their sympathetic nervous system is so frayed and so near the end of the spectrum of the amount of shit that they've been through for so long yeah. for that two and a half years it's like you know, hopefully this analogy helps. It's like when we computers are better now, so it doesn't happen as often. But, you know, 10 years ago when we had computers and there were too many windows open on it, the the, the, the computer eventually goes, I can't take this anymore. And it blue screens out and it shuts down, which is the freeze mode of our nervous system. These kids are walking around with all these open windows and you ask them a question and they're at the end of their rope because they're like, if you ask me another thing right now, I'm going to flip. Right. And it's, it's, it's hard because as a teacher, your instinct is to say, why isn't Sally, why isn't Jimmy just listening to me and paying attention to my lesson? And now it feels like a personal attack on you as a teacher. Well, that's because they don't like me, Mr. or Mrs. Smith. They're personally attacking me. And to be able to step away from that situation and say, they're not attacking me. They don't dislike me. They're so filled. Their bucket is so filled right now that if I throw something else on their plate, it's natural for them to be rude and to react that way. And and that's what, when I brought up the, the learning loss thing, that's where these schools are focusing so much of their attention. And it's like, you can't teach a brain on fire, a subject. Yet these brains are on fire and we're trying to cram more information in them before we're helping them heal. Yeah. When emotion is high, rationale is low. And I agree. I, and I hadn't thought of that actually, Eric, that, the trauma cups on people are just a lot more full. I was more thinking in a different direction that uh, a couple of years of staying in the house, <laughs> which has um, been more literal for others than for some than others, um, mm-hmm. has just created more disconnect because the trauma create the injury of trauma of trauma is disconnection, disconnection from yourself, from others, from society, and. That's what the pandemic did. It disconnected everybody from everybody. 
um, family members weren't seeing each other because they were all terrified. So the cortisol is high, and then not only is their cortisol high because they're worried about uh, about dying from COVID, but on top of that, they have no social supports because everybody's hiding from each other. I found myself because after feeling rejected by society, I'm now rejecting society. I'm an extroverted person who's turned into an introvert. And I, I've been seeing a lot of that. You know, I, I, I just don't think, and I, I haven't, I've yet to have a fully fleshed out discussion of just how big the impact has been. A lot of it, I think, lack of social skills, no, situation, situational and self-awareness. I, I'm gonna. I'm piggybacking on on your point. We just got together for last holiday season. Whether you celebrate Christmas, Hanukkah, whatever you celebrate, Kwanzaa, like, and it was the first time we were allowed, based on the powers that be in North America, let's call it that, right, to be together and to congregate and to not be told you're gonna kill someone by getting in the room with them. Yeah. Okay. To your point about lack of socialization. I wish I had a dollar because people confide in me because I'm open about my stuff. I wish I had a dollar for every person who told me, Eric, even when I get together with my friends, when I get together with my family, it's awkward now because like we ha- we're, we're like out of rhythm with talking with people. <laughs> like to your point about being locked in, like getting in front of people and having a social gathering feels awkward. Now take the cumulative effect of that. Okay. So you've got a, cup full, as you were describing it, of stress and trauma of a, of a nervous system. That is your next point that you brought up, lack of socialization. So we're not used to socializing. So then we go into that social situation, and now my friend Mark or my family member Mark, who I'm used to being able to sit on the couch next to and talk about just everyday shit and get to know him, what I've missed, now I feel awkward talking with him because this comfort level, this energy connection that we typically have as human beings has been frayed a little bit because we're out of practice with it. Where does my brain go? Oh my God, I must be even more fucked up than I thought I was. And now this sympathetic response gets even worse. So that cup that is filled is filling even more after we try to attempt the socialization because it hasn't happened because we become self-critical and go, I've lost it. I can't even have a conversation face-to-face with people anymore. We've become used to staring at this and going, that's my default mechanism. And I'm, I'm guilty. I'm not pointing the finger at other people. I get addicted to my work and the emails coming in. And what do we have a new program coming up? And we're working with a new team and a new organization. So I get locked into this and it makes, I went, I went out to a friend's birthday the other night at a bar in New York city that used to be my wheelhouse of where I was comfortable. And I'm like walking in the room and I'm like, this feels strange, <laughs> you know? So, so we're not talking enough about the assimilating back into a quote normal routine and how the difficulty of our communication styles has become so frayed and how that actually then the cycle of that is, well, there's something wrong with me because I can't get back to that routine that I was in two and a half years ago. Also, the focus on the news, because everybody's staring at their phones and staring at the news feed uh, for the next update on COVID. Is it going to get scarier? What's the next thing? And I don't think anybody's paid attention to the news to that level since World War II. You know, um, like, what's next? What's next? What's next? So, 
when you're paying attention to the news all the time, well, no news is good news. <laughs> Anything that you watch is death and destruction on the news. So there, the news consumption has gone up, would be my guess. And with that going up, cortisol goes up because it's not just the pandemic, it's everything damned else that's going on. And um, best thing you can do is stop watching the news. It's mostly bullshit anyway. <laughs> So, you know, so just stop, watch something else, watch a sitcom, like anything but the news. But um, people want to know, well, I got to know what's the threat level? What's the threat level? What's the threat level? It was a lot like uh, after 9-11, we are at an orange level. Uh, That didn't happen in the States or in Canada, I mean, but it was all over the States. Every airport, we're at this level, we're at that level. But at some level, (laughs) at the end of the day, this is our threat level, threat level, threat level. The message just was freaking relentless. Of course, the cortisol was pumping. It's um, it's almost like it's on purpose, keeping the cortisol pumping on everybody. Not <laughs> or or what I heard about that. And look, this is you you guys closer to the military would know if this is accurate or not. But what what I heard is psychological warfare, where they started learning a lot more about what really affects the brain and mind control. Mm-hmm. Go back into the sixties is threat, 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 threat take your foot off the gas a little bit. Then threat, 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 take your foot. Because if it's constant threat, you put people into that freeze response. And then you got people who are completely disassociated and are not following orders at all. At all. But, and look at the pattern of how things came out. I'm not trying to be conspiracy theorists. I'm just following the patterns. It was like, Omicron's going to kill us, right? Delta is going to kill us. And then it was like, no, it's not so bad. That things are getting better. We're seeing the numbers at the hospital. New variants, right? And then, like, everything was about the new variant. And then it's like, no, it's not as bad as we thought. So it's like this pattern of the world is ending, and you heard that for a three-week, one-month period, and then there was a week where they pulled off a little bit, right? So if you if you read on how psychological warfare takes place, it's not so out of the realm of possibility to believe Okay, some of this was orchestrated, right? I'm not, I don't want people to think I don't believe the pandemic existed. I don't want people to think that I'm denying that COVID happened. I, I have friends that died from it. I'm, 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 I'm not, not, you know, averse to that. What I'm saying is media, government, there, there's, there's money to be made in us being controlled. And unfortunately, I think some of that was used in, unfortunately, what was, uh, an awful period for our world where, hey, it's there for the taking. Let's let's use it to our advantage. Well, as they say, never let a good crisis go to waste. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, when people are just getting a little bit less scared of climate change, hmm, what else can we be scared of? Oh, here we go. <laughs> this is pretty yep. good. Uh, Got to be scared of something. And the more fear, the more compliance. Hmm, yep. Interesting. Who likes having lots of compliance? Who likes pe- you know people that just go okay, whatever you yeah. tell me to do, I'll do that because that that's what I'm going to do for my safety. Okay, more and yeah. more compliance, and it never stops. When uh, they said two weeks to flatten the curve, I had a bad <laughs> feeling in my head. Like I actually looked at my wife, and I said, mm, "Honey." I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think it's going to be two weeks. I, I think this is going to drag on for as long as they can possibly get away with it. Uh, I didn't think they'd get away with it for two years plus, but 
And, and it still hasn't been fully lifted. Like I can't fly to the States yet. I know. I know. You know, I'd have like, to drive across the border, then hop on a plane, then I can fly. It's amazing to me. It's amazing. Yeah. So what, uh, do you have like a mission and a vision for the we're all a little crazy podcast? Like what is it that you're hoping to achieve with that show? So we're all a little crazy podcast is an offshoot of what we do as same here global generally as an organization. So same here globals mission vision, I'll take you through all that is to normalize society's perception of mental health and make it part of our everyday conversation. Right. So we do that programmatically. I mentioned the five areas of focus. So K through 12 corporate offices, colleges, sports teams, and leagues, and then servicemen and women and first responders. So we're in the trenches to use a military term, um, albeit I don't know if that's derogatory towards uh, your folks because it's not true trenches. But compared to just being an influencer on social media who tries to build a following, we're rolling up our sleeves and we're doing the work that needs to get done in those five areas by traveling to everywhere from I was just at Nellis Air Force Base. Um, NYPD. So that's on the military side of things. In sports, I was just with the Buffalo Sabres all the way up to the Belleville Senators, Ottawa's AHL team, right? Um, Corporate offices, J.P. Morgan Chase to United Rentals. K through 12s all over the country and then colleges everywhere as large as USC and Indiana to as small as uh, Division Three Bluffton University, right? And so we're bringing programming. And when I say programming, it's not we're a speaker. We're telling our story. There's linearity to the programming. So we do culture development and changing the way in which people look at this topic to make it an all in it together conversation using the vulnerable storytelling. Then we go into common language because there is no common language in mental health. We use the science of polyvagal and understanding how the nervous system shifts to show people a scale, thriving, gliding, surviving, fluctuating, struggling, sinking, so that they have common language to be able to share how they are doing with their mental health states which then leads to the science of stress and trauma. How does that science impact structures in our nervous system from our vagus nerve to our amygdala to how porous our gut is so that we can explain why the movement up up and down on that scale happens. Fourth piece is the science of addiction. When we're not feeling right, when we move up and down on that scale and we move what's to the right on our scale to a place of oversympathetic response, what are we using to self-soothe and why What's the science behind how that self-soothing happens? Why do some people feel soothing when they get tattoos? Oh, yeah. Right? Like, why do some people feel self-soothing, in my case, when they do work in in an overabundance type of way? And and we don't damn those behaviors because we're like, oh, that person's just artsy. That person's just a hard worker. No, that person's avoiding pain just like the person who is an alcoholic. And and I hate the term alcoholic. I'll explain why. And a drug addict. Hate the term drug addict. We damn certain behaviors, right? And others, we say, oh, they're fine. Well, that person eats too much. Oh, okay, they're just enjoying life. No, that's an addiction, right? And so addiction is a dirty word, but an addiction is anything that's pain avoidance, right? We, we're simple beings when you break it down to that. We try to avoid pain. So that's pillar four. And then pillar five is we call them star, which you were asking before the show. Can we get into that? Stress and trauma, active releasing and rewiring or gym for the brain, that which builds up inside our nervous system and starts to wreak havoc and change structures of our body 
on a biological, on a physiological level, how do we start to repair and normalize those structures in our body? So those five pillars that we go into these organizations with, that's our main focus. And then taking those five pillars when we go into those organizations and tying it to things like our podcast, which I'll go into, that was your question, tying it into our docu-series that we're working on. But the bigger thing probably is tying the IP of the scale, which gives common language, and the star, which gives commonality to the exercises and the practice, and bringing those two PHPs and IOPs here in the States. I know there's different terminology all over different countries, but parcel hospitalization programs, inpatient hospitalization programs, residential treatment programs, um, actual clinical visits. We're attempting to give common language so that wherever you go in the sphere that you're looking to get mental health help, all the way on the proactive side of things of, I just want to work on myself to build resiliency, all the way to the reactive side, I'm in crisis mode and I need to do something about it. There's common language that we can share and go, what star exercises does that place teach? Because I want to know what modalities I can pick up on. Where am I at on the scale today? Because I want to understand how my nervous system has been shifting. If we give that common language, now there's a cohesive ecosystem that people understand and go, just like when we go to the hospital, what's my temperature? Okay, that gives me some kind of baseline for how I'm feeling. What capabilities do they have if there's something wrong with my heart? Well, they've got the ability to shock my heart with the defibrillator if I need that. They've got the ability to go in through with a catheter, as I was saying before. We accept these things in physical health, but with mental health, we don't hold organizations, companies, hospitals to the same standards, and we should be holding them to the same standards. So what we use the podcast for because of Theo's reach, because of Darren's reach, and then because of the reach of the guests that we typically have on is normalizing conversation back to that mission statement around this topic in everyday language as it pertains to current event topics that people are already following. So I'll give you the example of, of last episode was John Morant is a superstar for the Memphis Grizzlies been embroiled this, this year. It's his fourth year in the league. The Grizzlies are in second place in the Western conference, the best that they've ever been. But his, his dad sits courts at every game and gets into a fight with Shannon Sharp, the NFL player. Okay. Former NFL player. Then his dad is courtside for another game and gets into a fight with the Indiana Pacers. Ja and his dad are in a car together with a laser pointer at the <laughs> Pacers uh, bus. Okay. Then it comes out that Ja last summer, though the story just got released, um, punched someone in the face in a pickup basketball game in July. Okay. Then he's on Instagram live at a strip club and he shows a gun on Instagram live. Wow. So he checks himself into a mental health facility, what he calls a counseling facility in Florida. Now the timing of it was such that he go, it's announced that he's going to this counseling center in Florida, but Adam Silver, the commissioner then announces he wants to speak with Ja about what's gone on. So it's only two days after that announcement of the counseling and, and silver announces, okay, well, I'm going to give him an eight game suspension. What he did was wrong. And it's retroactive to the six games he's already taken off. So everyone on social media is going, Oh, some mental health counseling. He was only in it for two days. You don't get counseling. He did that for PR purposes. So when we broke down on the show, as an example, we had an integrated psychologist or psychiatrist on Dr. Andrew Pleaner and we wanted to talk about what can you learn in two weeks, which is the amount of time that Josh spent at the counseling center, 
In his interview, Ja talked about Reiki. He talked about integrative breathing practices. He talked about emotion regulation. When have you heard a public figure, whether they've been six months at a treatment center for substance abuse or they've been a year away from the game for mental health treatment, when have you ever heard them talk about the modalities that they're learning? And that's where we want to come in with the nuance of things. Let's not judge this guy because he only spent two weeks there. Let's find out what he learned, what changed his perspective, what tools he picked up that he can now bring with him. No one's, We're not saying he's off the hook for what he did. He's not saying he's off the hook for what he did. But let's give credit to where credit's due, where if he went to the right treatment place, this is now a great uh, message for um, society to understand not all treatment is 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 uh, measured equally. And we, as a society, are still judging the actions without trying to understand them. So we yes. go, well, this guy is a piece of shit. Look at all the stuff he's doing. Well, why? why? <laughs> what's, what, what's, what's going on? Uh, as I've often said, I went 23 years without being diagnosed with PTSD. And then when I did, the last thing I wanted was a PTSD diagnosis because of my service. I didn't want that at all. Um, and that is a big, big piece of the puzzle. Part of it is stigma. You know, that's why you, you don't uh, want to reach out for help because you don't want to know the answer. But I think most of it is self and situational awareness. When you get to the point where you realize everybody else isn't the asshole, well, that's me. That's me causing these problems. You know, uh, instead of saying, well, if people would just learn to not be so stupid, <laughs> you hear people say, it's like, well, do you think everybody's stupid? Like, how often are you losing your cool? Because people are stupid. Right. Uh, you know, do, do you think maybe there's a common denominator here? That, that's why the science and bringing doctors on to explain what happens to impulse control. I, I, want, I, was, I was looking at my phone as you were talking, Mark, not to be rude, because I want to read this. <laughs> but, but Darren, who's, who's, you know, that influencer, I guess, if you will, in sports business, mm-hmm. he usually checks with me before he puts a mental health post up because most of his posts are on sports business. He did this one on his own, right? And tell me this doesn't have Theo influence on it, right? Which is a beautiful thing that Theo's been in his ear long enough because we've done the show long enough. So he sees the news about John Moran going to counseling, and he writes, when a person goes to counseling after a series of bad mistakes, society defaults to this being used as an excuse. It's time for the new default to be, quote, this guy needs help. He has something greater going on. The actions often are the result of unaddressed ongoing trauma, right? And I was like, Theo is in, in Darren's ear. And like, how great that we've got a member of the media who's got a large platform understanding this because Theo's been talking and explaining this to him for so long. And to your point, we judge the behaviors. And two things can be true at the same time. Someone can have done things that are wrong, malicious, that they need to be penalized for and mm-hmm. that they accept the the ramifications of what they did. And at the same time, these things happen because of stuff they're holding onto from the past that happened to them that they need to work through and heal from. That's not taking away the culpability. We as adults are responsible for our own healing, but you can still have some kind of compassion for someone who did something and say, how do we help that person rehab? And thank God in the case of a John Morant, 
it was just flashing a gun because how often do we see it? It's shooting up a building. It's, and then, and then we have no compassion for that person whatsoever. And I totally get it. Don't get me wrong. Like our instincts as human beings should be that person just took innocent young lives. What an awful human being. He should go get the death penalty. There's truth to anyone who gets to that place where they commit that type of a heinous act that they should be punished in such a way. Try but there's it. also truth to, yeah. like, how was this person abused growing up? Like, how was this person, what household did they grow up in? What were their, how did their parents treat them? Were they an outcast in school where people just threw them the side and they were bullied mercilessly? Like, those are factors we need to discuss. People tend to be lazy thinkers, and they like to think one thought about one person, and that's it. Trump's an interesting example of that. You know, um, if you love him, you just love him. If you hate him, you just hate him. And there, there, there's nothing in between. It's like, well, the, the dude isn't a monolith. You know, I mean, he's got some stuff that I think is kind of gross <laughs> and he's got some stuff that I think is kind of great. You know, yeah. um, nobody is just one thing, but it's so much easier just to think one thing about a person, say this person is just that that's what they are. And then it's just a simple life that we have. Where we don't take the time to think well, Mark that nuance of what you just described about Trump, that it's, it's some good, some bad. And there's let's discuss where the gray area is is the same nuance I, I would have loved people to have had around the pandemic, right? Sure. So, you know, should you take the vaccine? Should you not take the vaccine? Well, how old are you? What's your health uh, profile look like already? Are you fearful of whether or not, you know, the what's in the, the vaccine because it's mRNA and not a traditional vaccine may impact you cardiovascularly? These are all things we should be able to openly discuss and ask and say, in some cases, it makes sense for someone to take the vaccine. In some cases, it doesn't make sense for someone to take the vaccine. And be okay that people fall on different sides of that line. And back to media manipulation and government manipulation, it became that one-way thinking because when you say it's lazy thinking, it's also our default as human beings to put things in one or two buckets. It's safe. Or it's awful, right? Yeah. It's right or it's wrong. And and we're wired that way because we're wired for back to that whole polyvagal, we're wired for neuroception. What is the threat around us? What do I I, I put my hand on the stove as a little kid, the stove burned me, I can't go near the stove again. So what is the stove as we get to be adults? And so when the authorities tell you those people who didn't get the vaccine, they're the stove. You can't go near them. Your mind goes into that binary way of thinking, threat over there, safety over here. And the answer is there was nuance to it, right? And and by the way, if it was proven that, you know, like polio and like these other, you know, uh, awful things that happened, that you needed to get it or you're absolutely giving it to someone, I, I, everything I'm saying goes out the window, right? Because, because, I think there's ailments out there that we've seen that without taking it, it ravishes uh, a society. In this particular case, I think what has come out since, right, over the, and, and that nuanced approach that was not allowed to be discussed for two and a half years was, what's your profile? Are you overweight or are you underweight? Do you have underlying conditions? Do you not? 
Is it safe to take? Is it not safe to take? Do you have a predisposition for pericarditis or myocarditis where if you take it, it may inflame those things? These are all factors we should have considered. Are you 70 years old where if you get COVID, then you have a greater chance of getting really sick? Chances are you should definitely take the vaccine, right? Like those nuances were not allowed to be discussed. And it just, it made me think of it when you brought up Trump because it's like, you're in, you're in Canada, I'm in the U.S., but I see it all the time. And you're right, it's bad orange man, awful human being, miserable person, greatest guy in the world, can't do anything wrong, everything about him is gold, right? Well, why can't the answer be in the middle, and why can't we discuss? <laughs> yeah, the idea of holding two thoughts in our head in the same time is, is difficult, and it takes a mature adult. But most of us are in a state of arrested development and don't realize it. And when you tell somebody that, boy, do they get pissed off and offended, <laughs> which proves that it's true. Because if you're getting pissed off and offended, then you're in a state of arrested development. <laughs> yeah. um, you haven't developed as um, from seven-year-old you. You're, you're still that seven-year-old in, in some degree if you are so fragile that um, uh, that somebody's opinion that contradicts you throws you into a tailspin. Oh my God, that person has an opinion that's not the same as mine. Therefore, I hate them. Okay, you're a child. Uh, sorry, that's how that works. That's, that's, and I'm not saying it in a finger-pointing, judgy way. I'm saying that in a factual, that's how the brain works. <laughs> Trauma arrests development. It's what it does. And th- that's what this is. That's what this looks like. Yeah. Speaking of what things look like, uh, we've, we've talked about a few different si- uh, symptoms and different examples, but the, when somebody goes 23 years though being diagnosed, which unfortunately is not uncommon, um, it's because everybody around them either didn't say it, didn't know what, to, didn't see it, didn't know what they were looking at, uh, or they were themselves just judging the behavior without trying to understand it. Uh, so all of us understanding what trauma symptoms look like helps us see it in others and helps us see it in ourselves. Uh, for an example, I've got a couple of cousins that are hoarders um, or living in what could only be described as a landfill site. And that all comes from childhood trauma because they are treating themselves the way they believe they deserve to be treated. Their, their actual inner sense of self-worth, is you can see by the level of cleanliness in their home that simply doesn't exist it looks like a landfill site like nasty and um so if we could talk about that a little bit to to help people spot it in their own lives uh, either with themselves or with others uh, when did you like what were some of your symptoms that um way back in 2015 where you realized oh this is a problem so it's so interesting because so if you remember back to the story, I, I leave the devils in April of uh, 2014 and in May of 2015, I'm chief revenue officer down with the Panthers blank slate uh, get to build the business operations from scratch. So they hired a team president who had no sports background history came from uh, Goldman Sachs. Why was he hired in that high of a position? Military guy. Okay. So our owner was a West Point grad. 
His financial advisor at Goldman Sachs was a military guy, trusted him through and through, great process guy. So I get hired as the guy with sports experience. I'm his number two coming in, working, you know, to build this business operations from scratch. And at the time, you think about the factors. I'm 33, 34 years old. I'm one of the youngest chief revenue officers in professional sports. So in the competition mind of mine, you know, I want to, you know, rule the world. I can't wait to be a team president at a young age way of thinking. So is it as chief revenue officer, does that make you the sales marketing guy? So it's essential and each, each organization is different, right? But because the Panthers were a little bit of a small organization, think of it almost like the team president oversees both hockey and business. And I was the guy overseeing business, right? So I had ticket sales. I had service. I had group sales. I had individual game sales. I had uh, sponsorship, right? Partnerships. So anything that was revenue generated, the only thing I didn't have at the time was um, our TV contract, right? Um, Which was being handled through the ownership group at the time. So I'm, I'm essentially one step away from what my dream job is, which is I want to be able to oversee both the sports side and the business side at the same time. So I'm overseeing the business side specifically. Some organizations, the hierarchy is a little bit higher. There's more le- layers. So you might have a CEO who oversees it all. Then you might have a president of hockey operations, a president of business operations. My title was not president of business operations. Matt was the CEO and president. And then I was that chief revenue officer who was overseeing business at the time. And so young thirties living in South beach, single guy making more money I've ever made before in my life. Um, no state income tax in Florida, living in a cool apartment in Las Olas Boulevard. So things were great, right. In terms of situationally. And this is where the juxtaposition of things I think is really interesting. So it started for me with losing interest in things outside of the office. So I would not want to go meet friends for work and I didn't have the energy for it. I didn't want to go to the gym and I'd come home after work and I'd literally lean my leg against the couch, fall onto the couch, fall asleep and then wake up at two in the morning, three in the morning. Go, Oh my God, I got to get a real night's sleep and then go into the bed and sleep for another three hours. Um, I didn't want to play in my own leagues. I didn't want to watch my teams on TV. Now, for everyone who's hearing that, you've probably experienced something similar, but what we do as human beings, back to when you brought up hoarding, Mark, my mind went to this. My addiction was work. Why? Because I got a dopamine hit from work being good, me being productive. So even with all these other things going on around me, not connecting, I didn't raise the alarm bell and go, shit, there's something really wrong here because I can go in the office at 6.30 in the morning. I can leave at 12 at night and we're getting more sales done. We're getting more renewals happening. We're meeting more fans. We're meeting more corporate partner prospects. Things are great, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that was fool's gold. I wake up one morning and it's like getting out of quicksand to get out of bed and my feet feel like I have cinder blocks on them. And I look in my closet and it feels like a bomb has gone off. And I did what most of us do. I white knuckled it, right? And I made myself go into the office because I'm like, oh, if I get into the office, things are going to start clicking again. And I had a I had a prospecting suite I had to present to that night, to your point of being the cheerleader on the marketing side. So I had to present to um, prospects. 
and I don't think I've quit anything before in my life, Mark, but I'm up there ready to talk to this group of 50 people. And I'm like, hi, my name is Eric Houston. I'm the chief revenue officer with the Florida Panthers. And all of a sudden my brain just goes dark. Like literally I'm, I'm, I'm looking out at people and I just see a black opaque wall in front of me. And I go, this is Matt, our team president. He's going to take it from here. And I walk out. And what happened over the next couple of days, my, my owner, um, that military, his name is, um, Vinny Viola. He was, he was secretary of the, of the, uh, army for a little bit. Wow. So he, he looked me in the eyes like, Eric, whatever you need, we love, we love what's getting built here. Take as much time as you need. One month, two months, three months, come back, hit the ground running. I think once the foot was taken off the pedal of, I can breathe here. My body went into freeze mode of my nervous system because it had been holding it off for so long. And I became agoraphobic. I couldn't leave the apartment. If I saw people outside as I opened the door, it felt like it was kryptonite and like I was going to be turned into stone. I couldn't remember what to order on a menu and call up. So, so you're already dealing with that your hunger pangs aren't there. You're freaking out that you're not hungry, but you're like forcing yourself. I got to order something. Even though it costs more money, I'll do it through Uber Eats or whatever I'll do. And you can't even remember what to order off a menu. So I go back to New York. I don't remember how the hell I got on the freaking plane because of how agoraphobic I was. I do remember putting headphones on like you're wearing and putting sunglasses on so that I didn't have to interact with anyone and just completely keep it to myself because the world felt like an unsafe place for me. And I came back to New York and for two and a half years, I just laid in the bed, staring at the ceiling, not watching TV, not listening to podcasts, completely dead to the world. I describe it as no original thoughts coming to my brain. So we take for granted when we wake up, oh my God, I've got a podcast with Eric today. I got to get the, uh, the link situated and make sure it gets sent out to him. These things come to us naturally, but we take them for granted that they come to us naturally. When your brain is in that freeze mode of energy conservation and you're taken offline because the too many windows on the computer have been open and now it needs to shut down, your brain's not working. There's no ATP turning into ADP and having energy flow through your system. You're just like a corpse. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that that's what was happening physiologically with me. I thought what is sold to us, I have a chemical imbalance and I need to balance out <laughs> my chemical imbalance. So I thought I was working my ass off by getting prescription drugs and trying to see which one was going to pop me out of this. And I tried over 50, 52 was the number, different psychotropic drug combinations. Every SSRI, SNRI, MLI, And how'd that work for you? It didn't work at all. <laughs> it, 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 it didn't work at all. And have, it, you and read, have you read the book, Lost Connections? Yes. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, basically, all of the so-called science, and I will do air quotes here for the video audience, so-called science uh, on the chemistry in the brain it, it, it's just not true. There is actually zero science showing that there's a chemical imbalance in your brain. So Here, basically the, the only, entire profession. I don't, know if, this is helpful. I don't it, know if this is helpful, Mark. Here's the only like, and, and, and hopefully this analogy is helpful and I don't know how much long, how long we have. So I'm sorry if I'm going long here. You can no, it's good, brother. Okay. So you look at what creates neurochemistry. Okay. We have a vagus nerve that connects our brainstem down to our stomach, which we've learned 
communicates even more from the stomach up to the brain than it does the brain down to the rest of the body. Okay. We make neurochemicals that we call our stomach, our second brain, because we make neurochemicals in there from the foods that we eat and the way it gets absorbed, right? We, 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 we eat foods, they come in the form of glucose, we, we breathe in oxygen, glucose and oxygen come together, creates that compound I was mentioning called ATP, adenosine triphosphate. A bond breaks off when we need the energy, it becomes ADP, adenosine diphosphate, and we get energy running through our system. Well, the nutrients that we're getting in our body from what we eat and how it gets absorbed into our body, if you have a porous gut, if your vagus nerve is not the right tonality, if your cells are inflamed because cortisol is running through your body, your cells can't communicate with one another, can't take the nutrients, can't absorb the nutrients that it needs from the food that it's eating to make the neurotransmitters that go into that brain of yours to make it work. So on the one hand, I understand why science went to this thing called your chemicals are off. Well, so they could sell drugs. Yes, to sell drugs. But the equivalent of selling that drug, that hopefully this analogy helps for people, imagine you had a house where the foundation of the house had holes in the concrete in the bottom, large holes. And those holes continued through all the walls in the house. And the walls were not, the structurally were not sound. There's holes everywhere. And then the holes went all the way up into the roof and there's holes in the roof. Okay, well, rain starts to come down. And now you're seeing rain come into your house. And you're like, that's shitty, there's rain in my house. And imagine your answer to that rain in the house was, let's put a tarp, a plastic tarp on the holes in the roof. You've done nothing to the holes in the wall. You've done nothing to the holes in the foundation. All you've done is prematurely for a little bit try to put something over the hole that's in the roof of the house to stop the water from getting into the house. Well, one, the rain's eventually going to get really heavy and make that tarp go in. Two, you've done nothing about the actual holes in the foundation and the structure of the house itself. That house is going to fall apart. So even for the people who say, well, look, Eric, there is science behind it. Look, Mark, there is science behind it because – neurochemically, it's not being created in our body because even all the things you just described, okay, but you're not fixing the structures of the body. You're just putting chemicals in the brain. And oh, by the way, it's not even synthetic serotonin or synthetic norepinephrine or dopamine. It's reuptake inhibitors. It's blocking the reabsorption of the shitty small amount you already have in your brain. It's not giving you new versions of it. Well, it's been so shown it's like, that the, the SSRIs, all of them, do not work more than uh, placebo. Yeah, you know they, they just the don't. Fifteen per. By the way, I don't know if it, it made its way through Canada, but there was that Huffington Post article, which I mean they wrote something up, that was actually true. Yeah, well, listen, in, in HuffPost, HuffPost in the UK. Okay, so so this is why I'm 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 being specific with the nuance of it. So Huffington Post in the UK puts it out there that large-scale study, the, 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 the biggest of its kind and the most recent, shows that 50, SSRIs work in, with 15% of people. Okay? <laughs> and with that 15%, placebo is within that 15%, right? Yeah. So chemically, how much is it really working? Now, not surprisingly, no, it was not published in Huffington Post U.S., no other major U.S. publication posted that article, but yet 
how is that information not getting out there? And the answer is because we're the largest consumers of, ph- of pharmaceuticals, right? So, so it's easy to sell us when the wool is pulled over our eyes. No, that's exactly right. Um, explain to me, you kind of touched on it, but you've mentioned polyvagal a couple of times, and you've mentioned yeah. the vagus nerve, but I don't yeah. actually understand polyvagal. So could you run yeah. me through that? Absolutely. So it's it's such a beautiful science. It, developed by Dr. Stephen Porges in the mid-90s, um, and he continues to morph it so folks understand. So when we are in a good state before trauma really starts to impact us, we have this balance in our scale. It's to the left of our scale, thriving, gliding, and surviving. We have this balance between the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system. Balance meaning we live in the parasympathetic response. I'm talking to my friend Mark. My, my, if you put my brain on an fMRI machine right now, it would be lit up like a Christmas tree. We're getting along. We're enjoying ourselves. We're in the moment. Well, if an accident happened right outside of my apartment, I'd have to spring to attention right away and go help that person because I'd see a person laying on the floor. That's me getting into my sympathetic response. Okay. That beautiful balance that we play back and forth between as human beings is how we're supposed to react. In the moment, in the moment, in the moment, take care of the stress. In the moment, in the moment, in the moment, take care of the stress. But we bounce back to being in the moment after we take care of the stress. You just lost your father. You know what that's like. Okay, I have to take care of the funeral arrangements. I have to deal with how awful that situation is. But now I'm back. I'm running my show. Okay. What happens over time, and my story is a good example of it, brother's sick, brother's sick, brother's sick, brother's sick, keeps happening. Or active brain, father passes away, brain goes, what happens if mom passes away? What happens if my wife passes away? What if, what if, what if, which is why the pandemic was so hard on people's mental health. That balance between parasympathetic and sympathetic goes completely off. And now the sympathetic response becomes the dominant response. And now you're living in hypervigilance mode, which is what I was talking about with the children being rude in school. It's, I've got so much on my plate. I've been thinking about the end of the world happening, right? That's a gross exaggeration. But I've I've been thinking about all these things that could go wrong. You can't throw another thing on my plate. If you do, I'm going to snap. And then the third phase is what he calls freeze mode. We've, We've heard it before, right? Fight, flight, and then freeze. Freeze is... There's too many windows open, and we describe it as too much sympathetic response. Now the nervous system goes, I can't continue to keep secreting cortisol, 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 cortisol nonstop and constantly keep you on alert. So from an energy conservation standpoint, we're literally shutting you down. So that two and a half years that I spent laying in that bed was me in that freeze mode of my nervous system. I couldn't get out of it because I was waiting for a medication to kick in and get me out of it. What I needed to do was movement. I needed to start to heal and normalize and get the vagus nerve back to greater vagal tone. I needed to heal my gut and put in the right, uh, you know, probiotics and and and, and so eat the right nutrients. What are you doing yeah. with your gut? Because gut health and mental health, uh, you know, I haven't had an expert on about that yet. But what's going on in your gut affects your mental health by a like a lot. So what are you doing on a regular basis to, um, to stay healthy with your gut health? So first off, see a functional uh, doctor who can do tests on, do you have celiacs? Do you have any gluten intolerances? Do you have anything that inflames your system? Fortunately, I didn't, okay? But 
now we're talking about the foods that we eat and I'm, I'm no nutritionist, right? But I had to go away from things like ton of fried foods, ton of French fries, ton of, you know, uh, mozzarella sticks to eating whole foods, right? Like blueberries and strawberries and, and peanuts and, and, and I'm a vegetarian. So that makes things difficult on me in terms of, um, how I get my protein. Um, now from a supplement perspective, I take something they're up in Canada. I think everyone should know about them and I'll give them a plug. It's a company called Renovo and Renovo makes micronutrients. And I take it as a, like a pixie stick thing and it gets put in sublingually and, and goes through the, the, the brain blood barrier right away. I take it twice a day and, um, I have a deficiency in my MTHFR to MTHFR mutation that all functional medicine doctors know about where I can't, um, I'm going to say this properly. Uh, my vitamin B doesn't get meth, uh, methylated the right way. So I've had, I don't uh, get, I've had Dr. Bonnie Kaplan on the show a couple of times. Bon, Bonnie's she's the researcher for, uh, Renovo and for, um, true hope, which is, oh, which is yes. conglomerate. Oh, okay. I didn't realize one and the same because both Theo and I uh, take the True Hope multinutrients, yes. and I learned of it uh, because of Dr. Bonnie Kaplan. True Hope and Renovo, you know, they they one gives one of the products from it. I forget which is the parent company, but Mark, it's a game changer because you. It's very hard to eat like a perfect diet and like get exactly what you need. If there are supplements out there that help you, I, when I was first taking it. I wasn't taking the methylated version and I wasn't getting much of an effect from it. And they switched me because they found out the way that my MTHFR gene had, had mutated that I, I don't, I don't break down that vitamin B the way that I need to in order for it to be used in my body. That's an important thing for us to know. The other thing that I'll plug for them is there's a product called green Bach BAC. I don't know what BAC stands for. My stomach has never been better on taking this stuff. So it is a probiotic. Um, it, it, it helps with the gut flora, um, that microbiome. And I don't know much of the science of it. A lot of things I like to learn up on and, and read up on it. This is one of those ones that just once I started taking it, like, you know, you eat the wrong food. Yes. You get food poisoning. All right. Your stomach's going to get messed up outside of that. My stomach has been great. You know, I never had a terrible stomach, but like, this just keeps me regular and not to get gross. And it's like, it's, it, 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 to me is a miracle. Like I, 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 I want to take it the rest of my life because I, 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 I feel like it's kept me in a good routine. I can't believe they're not paying me for this episode. They should be. Look, I want to help people, right? Like there, we, you get these things called, you've got a platform, you could have affiliate links and stuff like that. I, I wanted to build relationships where people trust that because I've been through shit, because Theo's been through shit, because you've been through shit, we open and we share what works for people, right? Yeah. If you start, like, I'm going to throw some people under the bus here. Kevin Love, the second he announced that he had anxiety, the next day he had a sponsorship deal with BetterHelp. <laughs> Fast forward a number of years later now, BetterHelp is now getting sued for selling people's private information. Like, oh. be a little bit, you know... I, and I don't, I don't damn Kevin for taking advantage of the platform that he has. Fine. You want to make money because you built a platform by playing in the NBA. Go ahead and do it. Be a little bit guarded. Like, take a little bit of a step back and say, who's the right people we should work with here? 
let me first start my message in an organic way where I'm just opening up and helping people. I don't need to announce an endorsement deal the next day. I think you build trust in the space by being real and sharing what you've been through. Then you can help people. So might I do suffer true hope down the road? Sure. Possibility. Right. But, but until then I I'd rather just put the information out there and help people. And I don't care if I get anything back from it monetarily. I just want to see people heal. Absolutely. What was the, um, first ray of sunshine to get you off that out of your bed and, and, and out of your place. Like what, what was the first bit of help that you found? So my integrative psychologist that I met with forced me to go to an integrative breathing practice session Okay, for three days. I was the only male, only one under 40 and only one born in this country. So it was me and eight Indian women and nine yoga mats. I was a complete fish out of water. But I, this is where I started learning about the vagus nerve. And, and I read the book going into it, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. And I was like, okay, I breathe every single day. Why is breathing going to help me? Okay, well, I'll give everyone an example. If that car that the accident happens where the sympathetic response kicks in, I go, oh, I'm changing the way I breathe. Yeah. Well, guess what? I'm Mark and my dad's sick. I'm going, oh, when's something going to happen? When am I going to get bad news? That breathing, that pattern changes. That pattern changing is sending messages between the brain and the body. Something's not right. So when we do a rhythmic breathing pattern, what we're telling the body is it's okay. You can chill. Like when a stressful situation happens and you do the, it's not the end of the world. It's a situational period. And you can come back to center and breathe naturally when that threat goes away. So these rhythmic breathing patterns train our central nervous system to go, we're going to be in different phases. It's no different than when you go to the gym and you lift weights, heavy weights, medium weights, really quick, smaller weights for fast switch muscle fibers. Your muscles need to be ready for whatever event is going to come its way. Do I need to pick a car up or do I need to run away from someone? You train for both of those things. Can you run us through one of those uh, breathing exercises? Say that again. Can you run us through one of the breathing yeah, exercises you like? We call, we call them star exercises. This is the one that healed me. Okay. Is I call it snowman breathing, though they would have a different name for it just because I think it's easier to, to remember it. So think of a, a snowman as the, the circle on the bottom. There's three circles. The circle on the bottom is the biggest. Circle in the middle is medium-sized. Circle on the top by the head is the smallest. Okay? So breathing only in the nose and out of the nose Equal patterns in and out, which just makes this one unique because usually you do more out than in. I'll explain why in a second. But equal in and out. I want you to think about tracing the outside of the big circle so that there's a long breath in, long breath out for the first breath, right? So it's... So your breath in is tracing half the circle. Your breath out is tracing the other half of the circle. You do that for 20 breaths of really short, or sorry, really long, okay? After you do the 20 of the big circle, you do 40 of the medium-sized circle. So it sounds like this. Do 40 of those. Last one, you do 40 of the really small circle, and the breath sounds like this. Okay, and so you do three rounds of that, of 20, 40, 40, 20, 40, 40, 20, 40, 40. Think about the science of that for everyone who's hearing that. 
you're training your vagus nerve to be in different states at different times. You're allowing it to normalize that long, even breaths can happen. And I can be in the moment. Shorter breaths may happen and really intense (laughs) breaths might happen also. But if you're going through a rhythmic pattern of that, you're training your body that just because one thing happens doesn't mean you need to stay stuck in that. You can go between all three and our body needs to know it's okay to be in any one of those states that it's one of my favorite breathing patterns for that reason. So so what symptoms were alleviated just by this alone? So I I didn't get back and I still don't think I'm fully back emotionally after five years of doing this. I think our emotion centers take the longest to come back, but my cognitive and executive functioning started coming back. I had desire to pick up a controller and watch TV to make scrambled eggs for breakfast. And then I could do my work. So what builds from there is now that I have cognitive abilities, my confidence builds. Now that my confidence builds, my emotional centers start to come back. So it's a, it's a cascading effect. I do think the true emotional healing work has to come from things like TRE, which I'm sure you're familiar with in the military, which is tremoring out. Um, David Berselli is the inventor of it helps you induce a tremor response like animals have and literally being able to tremor what's caught up inside of you out of your body, doing things like tapping, doing things like havening. Okay. These are all the things that we put in this concept of star exercises because so much of our healing has to be brain body based. If we're just cognitively thinking and sitting across a chair, waiting for someone to untangle this tangled up ball of yarn in our head, we're never going to feel better. We're waiting for someone else to fix us. We're waiting for the pill to make us better. That's not how healing happens. You got to go get your ass to the gym if you want to lose weight. You don't just take this thing called hydroxycut and then all of a sudden get thin. You got to run on the treadmill. You got to box a little bit. You got to do some stuff that gets the heart rate up, burning calories. Same thing should be true with our mental health. We have to do work to heal ourselves. Well, and that's the thing just in general is people run away from work. Like, oh, that sounds hard. So they run away from it instead of towards it, not realizing that running towards the work, not away from it, is where self-esteem comes from. Doing the work, and the bigger the challenge, the uh, the bigger the reward. So the bigger the project that you're doing, the better you feel about yourself, the more your self-confidence and esteem goes up because look at this big stuff that I do, but it starts with the small stuff. It starts with making your damn bed in the morning. You know, that is a win. And for a lot of people, that's a huge deal. Clean out your garage, you know, get your tools organized, sweep the floor, get rid of the clutter. You you do these things and you start to feel better because there's less apps open. You know, as uh, you you properly referred to earlier. There's less apps open and this happens, I know, in, in, in military hospitals all the time. One of the modalities that they teach is, and I forget the name of the art, but it's art where you throw the paint at the canvas and then it dries in all these beautiful patterns, Right. Why do they do that? Because they want to teach the brain the reward center again. I quickly took something and I made something and it looks nice. What you're describing, Mark, is I'm cleaning up the garage. I'm doing 10 sets of push-ups. I'm mopping the floor. In the moment, you don't want to friggin' do any of that. I'm going to be honest with everyone. Like you, You have no desire to get up and hold a mop and mop the floor. 
But when you make yourself go, wow, there's dust on the floor, there's dirt on the floor, and I just made it go away, even though it doesn't feel good because you're exhausted and it's the last thing you want to do to get up, you have to train your brain back to there was something there, I did it, and I accomplished that. That's the reward system that gets blunted when we're in that freeze mode that needs to get restarted and reignited or we stay stuck in the same pattern. And be happy with the small wins, you know, because any win is a good win. If it's you brushed your teeth today and it's the first time in a week, that's a total win, you know, fantastic. And if you can work your way up to doing it every day, well, all the better. But and it's an act of self-care and self-compassion by looking after yourself, as is everything that I just previously mentioned about getting your house in order, your literal house in order. Uh, these are acts of self-compassion. And the more you you treat yourself with compassion, what do you know? The better you start feeling about yourself. It's uh, th- That circle goes in both directions. And... The better you treat yourself, the better you feel about yourself. I, I would I would add to that as we and I, I'm looking at my clock, going, "Oh my god, I can't believe I we, we've talked this long," which is great because it feels like it flew by. And then I'm like, I had to email someone, be like, "Hey, pushing pushing the call back ten minutes." Um, if you have someone in your life, Mark, you have your wife. Other people have a partner. They have a friend. They have a family member. It doesn't have to be a whole community. Ask someone to be your accountability partner with you. There's no yes. shame in that whatsoever. I my my I mentioned his name earlier, Dr. Andrew Pleener. He'll say to me like, "Hey, did you do any of the exercises today?" And I go, "No. I need you to get on my ass in a I say that in a clean way. I need you to <laughs> not in a prison you, way. <laughs> yes, not in a prison way. I need you to give me a hard time that I haven't done it so I feel some level of accountability to you that I'm letting you down that mm-hmm. I haven't done it." And you like, that's why the, 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 the practice of a personal trainer at a gym works. That's why these guys are employed because you, you, as a human being, when you're feeling just, eh, all right, sometimes you just let that coast and you don't do anything about it. Don't live in an am mode. And even when you're in a freeze mode and you feel awful and you're like, Oh, eventually it's going to get better. If I keep sleeping, eventually it's going to get better. If I keep sleeping. Take it from the guy who tried that for two and a half years. It's not going to get better if you keep sleeping and wait for the magic pill. You need something to ignite that system and get it going or it just sits there. Yeah. And I think we're about there for time. You've got to, you get it. I can't believe we're at a buck 25 already, but uh, (laughs) Eric, I I've been looking forward to having you back on the show and I'm glad that we didn't do a duplicate episode. We've, we've covered a lot of new stuff, but uh if anybody wants to listen to our first conversation, it was um, we covered a lot of different stuff. It was back at episode 97, way back in the day. Please go back and please uh, check out the same here, or I'm sorry, the We're All a Little Crazy podcast and the Same Here Initiative. Um, Eric, thank you so much for all the work that you do in getting rid of stigma and in helping people. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'll, I'll give the social handles and the website for people to visit. Do. If it's helpful because you can find all that. So it's same here as in it's based on American sign language sign. You and I were the same. So S A M E H E R E global.org. And then all the social channels are it's just up on the screen there. It's at same here underscore global. And uh, I share that not out of hubris of like wanting to get followers. 
I want followers so I can help people. I, if you ask the people who follow Same. us, I love the interaction on the DMs and how many times people call up and say, I'm going through this. And I'm no doctor, but I, I try from a peer-to-peer standpoint to help as many people as I can. So please reach out. All right. Eric, please stay on the line. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Tramar Recovery Podcast. Hello, my friends. Thank you for sharing your time with me today. I hope you found value in today's episode. If you found this episode helpful, healing, or informative, please let me know by leaving a rating on either Spotify or Apple. And please share, share like the sugar bear on all of your social media channels. Because sharing is caring.